Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With the support of listeners and guests, we're here to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. My name is Lee. I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by Tom. Hello there. Uh, Nick. Hi. Charlie. Yeah, and we have a very special special guest with us here today. We are joined by Ashok Kumar, who is a senior lecturer in political economy at Birkbeck University, and he's the author of a recent book called Monopsony Capitalism: Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age. Uh, it's recently been upgraded to a prize-winning book, having won the Emmanuel Waterstein Book Prize from the American Sociological Association. But you might know Ashok from his occasional appearances on Sky News back when they allowed left wingers on. Please say. Hi, Ashok. Thanks, man. Hi, everyone. Cool. So we bumped into Ashok uh, as he was on numerous panels at the recent event in Bristol called Bristol Transformed, a wonderful festival festival of ideas that we're really pleased is still happening. It's going from strength to strength each year. And uh, there were a few points that Ashok raised in some of his panels that we thought we'd like to discuss and share with the wider listenership. Um, So in the spirit of requires improvement, uh, we are going to invite Ashok to offer his first thing that perhaps might require improvement. Um, How are things in higher education as a worker currently, Ashok? Well, uh, thanks for asking me uh, onto the uh, podcast. Podcast for inviting me on. Um, yeah, so things in higher education in Britain have basically been going downhill, let's say, since about 1997. Um, I don't know what happened that year, but, um, you know, obviously up until people know this, but basically there was um, people had, um, you know, uh, could go to university for free, could live on the dole in the summer um, and, you know, had maintenance cl- grants and left with money in their pocket. And you had a much more antagonistic um, sort of, let's say, National Union of Students, even in, you know, I'll say 1984, when Thatcher introduced fees, like minimal fees, uh, you had the National Union of Students organize a national, when it was free, national rent strike where 100,000 students ref- promised to refuse to pay rents and they capitulated, they climbed down within a week. Um, but now you see what's happened. It's basically in 2010, and people are familiar with this. You had the highest increase in fees in the entire world, in the history of the world. You had the most expensive public education in the world, uh, you know, 9,000 pound fees, when 10 years previous it was basically free. Um, and so at that point, that's when you started seeing a kind of full fledged attack on higher education. You've seen a 20% real term wage cut in wages of, of lecturers uh, and workers in higher education from 20, 2009 to the present. Um, you know, uh, university lecturers in Britain are the least paid in the advanced capitalist world. Um, and recent attacks are just uh, kind of making it worse. So, there's been, and people, again, I don't know how familiar everyone is, but, you know, they, we've been having, I think it's the most strikes of any sector in the country in the last four years. Um, and much of it is on the question of pensions. Uh, and there's kind of a debate recently about how much the cut will be. You know, they're saying between 35%. Some, some numbers are saying between 35% and 40% uh, cut to our pensions. Um, and, uh, you know, UUK, which sort of represents the universities, and uh, USS, which is the sort of trustee that runs the scheme, um, 
said that these, you know, basically published the, their their well, their demands would the equivalent of the cut would be about two hundred forty thousand pounds cut per average member, um, and so you have to understand, like you know, this has to be taken into into the. Um, no, to between 20, 2011 and 2019, we had 240,000 pounds cut per member. And then on top of that, we're looking at 35 to 40% cut. So in terms of wages, in terms of pensions, we're seeing a full-on assault. Um, and, and, and our union, um, you know, we had a basically quite a, a kind of kind of bloated bureaucracy until a few years ago, led by someone named Sally Hunt, who kind of didn't do anything. Um, and then, you know, there was a revolt against that. And, um, you know, we had, a, you know, a new leadership take over. And so the problem with that leadership is that they've sort of, you know, even when, um, even when, uh, uh, the previous administration took over in the, in the, um, it took over as a kind of reform ticket in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s. Um, uh, you, they, they came in as a reform ticket, and that and Joe Grady, when she came in, she came in this time as a kind of reformer. You know, she came out of the the strikes, and the 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 the, the existing leadership wanted to kind of capitulate, and we had this kind of revolt, and we had the protest at, at UCU offices. I think it was in 2017, 2018, and so she gets elected off the back of that. But the problem is that she has. You know, very little ideology. I mean, I don't really think she was involved in any, even involved in the union until that year. I don't think she had any broader ideology or politics, which um, was obviously a problem because then it became that you had this group called UCU left within the union, um, which is largely represented by a particular Trotskyist sect. Uh, and I don't think that, I'm not being sectarian here. I'm not saying just because you're part, part of a particular Trotskyist sect that therefore, you know, you can't organize at all, but there's a tendency to try and outflank Joe to the left, which isn't very difficult. Um, and so they're, they're calling strikes all the time because they, they wanted to, they didn't, they kind of didn't think that Joe, Joe Grady was going to call strikes at all. So instead of thinking about the university in strategic terms, right, you're looking at a university, what does the university produce? And I said this at the, I kind of alluded to this at the talk in, in, in um, Bristol, but the university isn't a place of really producing education or learning. Of course, that's what we want it to be, but it's a place that produces degrees. Those degrees are then, they're purchased by students and those students then take those degrees and have greater labor market access to it, or they can trade it for a higher paying job at their current job or a promotion or any number of things. There's a very fungible material uh thing that we produce and that product, that commodity, if we're a factory, we're producing that degree. And so calling strikes just kind of like a robot at any given time, uh, rather than calling strikes in a strategic way, because we're taking, we're already t have taken these huge cuts to our pensions, done years of strikes, taking huge cuts to our, um, to, to, uh, our wages, a, a real term cut. And so if you're already, if, if we were a militant union, if we we're a Turin in 1960s or something, then we could be like, yeah, all out all the time. But we're, the level of militancy simply wasn't there. So calling a strike in mid-March, in the middle of term, calling a strike at the end of December, when it has almost no effect on the university in terms of its finances, if anything, university administrators probably liked it because it's like kind of furlough. You get to save a bunch of money and it costs you nothing. Um, and so instead of doing that, 
uh, had we really struck in the beginning of the year and called out and shut down the universe, because that the university can't function if we strike right in the beginning of the year, it's complete chaos, or we built it up, we struck in the beginning of the year, built it up to a marking boycott, which would have actually stopped the commodity in its production process, we could have seen something happen that was meaningful. But instead, we've sort of done it in all kinds of ways. And now only a few universities back the marking boycott. My university was one of those universities. I think 110 universities voted, something in the mid 20s or 30 supported it. And those that opposed it, I mean, we supported it. We had one of the biggest turnouts, but we said this is a failed strategy because if you go on a marking boycott and it's a handful of people that are going on a marking boycott and you're and, and that's the strongest tool in our arsenal. And you're taking full pay cuts. You know, I would take two months pay cut in the summer for a marketing boycott of the entire class I'm teaching, or even if you're on a part-time pay, I mean, I have a permanent contract where people on part-time pay uh, contracts are losing their entire salary. Then that's a lot to ask. And you got to win because once you use that tactic and you lose, that's then weaponized and used as a cudgel to dismantle and destroy the possibility of using that again. So, just using it willy-nilly to satiate different sec- sections of the of the of the union is just it's not strategic and you're not trying to win you're you're just trying to play games and that and it's it's kind of a bit too late to play games so what happened was a few universities then pulled out and now this week 19 universities like a kamikaze mission have gone on strike and I look more power to them and I know people in those unions and I'm like obviously if my union hadn't pulled out and I wish we hadn't actually pulled out even though I think it's insane to go on a marketing boycott for a handful of universities, I would have, of course, gone on strike. But I, um, I think it's, it's, there's very little prospect of winning. A handful of universities, most militant universities going on strike means that you've exhausted them and they've lost their, lost their paychecks for a month, maybe even longer. And um, the prospects look, don't look great. Um, and, and, you know, Joe Grady's proposal now, sorry, I'm ranting and raving about Joe Grady, is, hey, she's like basically read Jane McAlevey. I love Jane, Jane McAlevey. But when you're a faceless bureaucrat reading Jane McAlevey and you just take radical language like rank and file and solidarity and you just use it like a like a kind of it's like, you know, the classic facing right and, you know, what's it facing right and talking left? You know, back in the day, I remember in 2011, you had like PCS. I mean, I like Mark Sawaka being like, what we need is a general strike. I'm like, shut up, dude. Just go on strike. Don't go like what we need is general strike. And like all the left bots are like eating it up. It's like I want to see what you're going to actually do. Um, And so, um, you know, she's like, let's regroup, like build consciousness. And in in 2023 and 2024, we can go on strike. It's like, just admit that you've lost. At least then we can pick up, you know, pick up what we've got, build, mobilize and do something. But the problem is, you know, it's not, there's not, doesn't seem to be a real interest in winning. It just seems to be, you know, different camps kind of retrenching themselves and, and trying to like, win factional wars, which is a real shame because really the, the members and, 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 and the sector are, are the big losers from this. Yeah, and, and I think that's really why I wanted to pick up this thread for discussion because if you actually read Jane McAlevey, she, she talks about what, what the working class deserve and it is a strategy that is focused on winning because uh, she's seen firsthand, you know, especially in America, in the American context, of, of leading workers up the hill and then marching them back down again is 
well, it's just ruinous to the very concept of, of, of trade unionism, never mind the wider socialist project. Um, so just to help our listeners out a bit, Ashok, if they may not be so familiar with the higher education sector, what was the most recent strategy attempted by the UCU? Because I understand there were two strands to the industrial action. Or is that, have I, got, have, I, have I already got that wrong? Well, my understanding of the strategy was that, uh, well, there wasn't exactly a strategy from my vantage point. I mean, of course, it's difficult. I'm not going to say that, uh, I'm not going to say that, you know, it's not carte blanche that like a general secretary can say, this is the strategy and we're going to do the strategy. So it was kind of like they were feeling their way around. So, I mean, I'm definitely going to give, say that it wasn't something that you can just roll out and everyone accepts it. It was kind of, that you know we there was the there was the negotiations and the agreement that was going to be implemented i believe in april or may in the beginning of the year they said okay we're going to ha- build up to this this um build up uh, our strikes to then potentially see if the 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 appetite was there for a marking boycott the problem with doing that as i said is that you end up exhausting your membership um especially after you know we've struck three of the last four years um and uh, and then also COVID and the, the kind of work schedules that people had around then. So that was the strategy around, I mean, and you had different factions kind of moving forward with that. The strategy document that, that, that has been put forward now since that vote around the marking boycott, which was so low in terms of the number of universities and campuses and branches is that branches that backed it was, this is by, uh, Joe Grady's strategy was that we regroup reorganize and wait till 2023. The problem with that is you wait till 2023 and we lose. Instead, what the proposal should, what we should, you know, at least our branch and a number of other branches try to propose and have voted for internally is that we mobilize. um, And if we had a national reballot in September and really mobilize for that in the summer, really try to like a last ditch attempt to try and stop this for a national strike that's indefinite, beginning in October. And that was a discussion all throughout, you know, last year, should we go on indefinite strike, should we not, da, da, da. Um, but it's, um, and that's, if we're serious about winning, if we're actually serious about winning, then that's what we have to do. Now, if we're not serious about winning and we just say, okay, we're not gonna win, fine. Maybe we won't win. And we're like, okay, let's cut our losses, which are huge, and just, uh, you know, regroup and reorganize and wait for the next fight or mobilize for the next fight. That's a decision we have to make. But I think it's disingenuous and dishonest to say, oh, this is still a fight we can win and wait till 2023. That's just not, it's a different fight. We've, we just accept that we've lost this fight if you're waiting till 2023, because it's just not going to happen. Okay. All right. Thank you for that, Ashok. I mean, I guess one thing I'm curious about and something that will be of interest to our listeners who work in the secondary, primary and sort of wider education sector, um, I noticed that there's a growing sort of parallel between the way that universities now exist as private institutions. Um, There has been a a, a creep of privatisation into the education sector from the top down. And I, you know, the more conspiratorially minded amongst us would argue that this global education reform movement or the germ is about structurally paving the way for the loss of, you know, con- contractual conditions and service, basically. So I just wondered if um, you wouldn't mind explaining to the viewers, like, how has the very structure of the university sector made it possible or easier for the government to initiate a slash of 30 to 40% of your pensions? 
Well, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's, uh, I don't, I can't really, the structure of education in terms of how um, once that the the process of basically the 100% cut to the, tea, the teaching grant in 2010 and the introduction of fees and the expansion of fees, what it did was basically make these universities kind of loosely within the regulatory framework of the state, but ostensibly kind of independent independent universities. They're public, but they there's very little about them that's actually what you'd conceive of as a public you know, of public institutions. And what that does, I think both in terms of like materially and hegemonically is materially it means that you know we exist and you can see it. I don't I, I wasn't there before this, but you can see even in the period in which I've been in higher education, which is mm, since 2012, um, the slow kind of transformation of of even kind of more radical or more liberal artsy kind of departments focusing on uh, on um, the university as simply a place that um, uh, boosts employment and is like for the purposes of you know, look let's not let's not have any illusions about what universities were universities were basically always this kind of middle ground between um, were meant as a place where you could, you know, uh, originally as kind of finishing schools for the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy, but then later on, kind of these training schools that were somewhere in the middle between, you know, where people are are from school and where they want to go professionally, at least in terms of like middle classes and above. And then that kind of changes in the 90s. But it's not um, that now there was a period in which that wasn't the case. And now it's very much, I think, um, locked into this kind of, uh, you know, constantly when we're talking about courses, for example, even now we're talking about courses and the course has to be, how is this going to boost employability? How is this going to um, make, you know, students more likely to get this job or that job or increase their... And also because of these cuts, departments are constantly seeking money from like big capital, finance capital. When I was in, when I was doing my PhD, at an unnamed institution, they were they were um, uh, they were money, getting money. And this was a wealthy department. The Climate uh, Research Center was getting money from Shell. The Water Research Center was getting money from Coca Cola. And that stuff starts really in uh, really in the late 2010s when the cuts begin. So what happens is the cuts begin, and it moves from a kind of much more critical or like whatever left wing or you know, a academic who's like has experience, get you know, like in terms of research, in terms of this and that, moves very much. Even internal committees are like, oh, we need people that can bring in funding. So it fundamentally alters the goals and the the, the funding and the the drives of drive of, of these departments. And this wasn't even like a it wasn't even like a finance department. It was like a geography department. So um, so it, I think in terms of of the overall culture and the motivations and the drive of a university, I, even in the short period I've been there, it's 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 transformed quite radically. Um, and so what that's done is is it's it's made it so it's acceptable to say, oh, this university, the sense of solidarity is also eroded. I remember in our in the current university I work in, in certain humanities departments and certain um, where there's like they're 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 not getting numbers up. The proposal to cut 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 people in those departments. I know for a fact that 
people before would have been like, you know, very much opposed to that out of a pure sense of solidarity, but also self-preservation. Whereas now they're like, wait a minute, they're not bringing in the money. So they're like almost become little managers, you know, like running around, like being all managerial for the man for the senior management. Um, it's really pathetic, but it's also obvious that that's the kind of general like hegemony in terms of the, the kind of the culture of the university that's been transformed. And also students, it's constantly like, how will this affect students? I remember in 2010, when there was strikes, people would think a little bit about, okay, how is this gonna affect students? But it wasn't a big part of it. Now it's constantly, we gotta bring in the students. I'm like, yeah, we gotta bring in students, that's fine. At the end of the day, we're workers. Like, I, I want transport workers to think about how do we gonna win over consumers? But at the end of the day, you know, that that's that shouldn't be their their, their first, first um, priority. And it does seem like because it's now so clear that students are consumers that, I mean, you can't even deny that. I remember back in the day, people would be like, students aren't consumers. It's like, how can you not? Of course they're consumers. I mean, there's no denying that. They're paying like mortgage style debts for these educations. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it mirrors concerns we have about the role of academization. Uh, you know, for instance, in, in the in my local county, there is only one secondary school that is still run by the local authority. The rest are academized and they do come with with corporate sponsors. There's an increasing sort of, yeah, view towards this this marketized education, the student as consumers. I've got contributions from my other host willing to come in. Charlie was there first. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that, yeah, students obviously consumers, but I think that the, it's been used really negatively. Um, but the kind of thing that takes them from being just a consumer, you know, you imagine, like you mentioned, transport, everyone going to work, everyone's annoyed, you know, that there's strikes, whatever. But as students, um, they're competing with each other and they're made to compete in the exact same system that all the lecturers and all the staff um, at the universities are also competing with each other. And so it's becoming more and more cutthroat, isn't it? Um, but by making students, you know, have, have their lecture, missed lectures or have things delayed, you know, we know, and on the left, I guess, we fight ourselves. So we know that it's the poorest students, the most vulnerable students that end up being most affected by it. And, it, and it's like painful to think, I think sometimes as teachers, we have the same thing. But, it, you know, as, as you said, in sort of the grand scheme of things, it still has to be done. That's not a reason not to do it. That's a reason to do it. But it's convincing those people that's the really difficult thing because it's, you know, I don't need to be convinced of that. I know that while, the, you know, the most vulnerable students, I know it could negatively affect them. But broadly speaking, yeah, what's what's happening is also definitely going to negatively affect them. So it has to be done. But it's about getting that message across. And that's a, a really difficult thing to do. I guess just to respond, I mean, I, Charlie, I completely agree. And I don't want to sound, I didn't want to sound kind of like, like kind of heartless being like, that doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Um, just because, and the UCU's position, obviously, as everyone knows, has always been free education, even when the NUS's position in 2010 was this completely nonsense graduate tax. Um, and, uh, and so it's like, of course, people need to be won over. But there's a, what I was kind of indicating was a, there was a kind of, it seems like there's a fundamental, shift in how people see themselves. And I mean, yes, students always never necessarily saw themselves because it was like students represented largely people who are not always, but more well off. I mean, I guess that did change a little bit in the 90s. But, you know, if you look, I think there was a study by uh, Nandini Guptu or some Indian scholar, but basically there was a Mumbai strike of transport workers in 
1989, and there was a Mumbai strike of transport workers in 2009. Same, same, same um, strike, and it went from like something like crazy 80, 90 supporting it in in, two, in 1989 to like 80, 90 opposing it in 2009 because people fundamentally shifted in their idea of how they saw themselves because you have the explosion of neoliberalism basically happening in 1990 and that meant that people stopped seeing themselves as workers and that of course they're going to be in solidarity with these workers just intuitively to being see themselves as consumers and that shift is a very real one and i can kind of see the indications of that certainly in in the in the like british higher education context yeah I was, well i just wanted to kind of push a little bit further on the idea that um students in primary and secondary schools are consumers because it is easy to say like pay the fee get the education get the debt get a qualification trade the qualification for a slightly better job or to get onto a course or something but i do think it's slightly harder to see that with uh the little wee kiddie winks and the teenagers um because i mean it is difficult when you try and explain something like education is being privatized or you try and explain what academization is like most people don't understand it most people on the left don't really understand um how that works um but also said like, like a big premise of our podcast is that like on the left we don't really talk about education enough like, or, or properly um and i guess another so two questions there one and this could be for anyone how do yeah the younger students school students pupils uh, fit in with uh, how are they consumers Or who is the consumer and what is the product as well? Like, like what is the kind of Marxist socialist analysis of how education fits in with the wider capitalist framework? Because I don't know, you sort of hear about it being as part of the kind of general ideology. You know, is, is education just something that the state sort of begrudgingly pays for just to prop up certain things? Um, or is it more is it more complicated than that? I mean, I don't know who could respond to that. I mean, I don't, I am not from this country, um, obviously, uh, but there was charter schools. I mean, it's really shocking. When I learned about academies, I was like, how is that even possible? Because in the US, you have charter schools, but there's a huge movement against charter schools. The institutions like the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, which is like a multi-billion pound dollar um, think tank, whatever, uh, their single biggest priority is to basically privatize schools because it's the, la it's the only thing in America that makes people think that the state is anything but the, a, an institute of, an instrument of violence. Because everything else is like prisons, police, guns, missiles, uh, border guards. There's nothing, the state doesn't provide anyone with anything in America other than in terms of schools. And they're like, wait, this is ideology. We must destroy this. So... And that's sort of why with the COVID stuff, there's so much conspiracy in the U.S. They're like, Americans are so crazy. Why is it? Because it's like all they know is the state is a per, like as a perpetrator of violence. So, of course, they're going to think the state's lying to them. But anyways, that's why it's so important ideologically that they wanted to erode these public institutions, the only public institution. And that's why they're trying to privatize like basically fire stations as well. But um, on the question of what is the schools, I mean, I guess I, that would be more a question I would ask you guys. But if you look at like obviously the literature, depends on what literature you're reading, but like, you know, E.P. Thompson's Making the English Working Class, the section on schools, and he's talking about Manchester and other places. I have it right here, actually. Um, great book. I was just uh, perusing it the other day. Um, and they, he basically describes how, you know, you, you know these, you've got these kind of emergent bourgeoisie looking and these kind of like just kind of 
fat cats, being like, what are these run kids running around? People have been dispossessed from their means of subsistence, pushed into the cities. And he's like, you know, there's kids are running around like just unruly. People aren't really re- very disciplined. And so they create, I mean, this isn't a conspiracy. It's very well documented. Create the first schools. Basically, I mean, it, to mirror the factory. So it's like you get wake up at an ungodly hour. You're driven. You go to school. You know, a bell rings. You stand in line. You listen to an authority figure. A bell rings. You sit in class. You do mundane tasks all day. It doesn't matter what the task is. You go to elite schools. They're being taught how to like manage empire, and they're the managerial class. But the vast majority, the working class, when you're basically reproducing the conditions of the factory, bell rings. You go eat. Bell rings. You come back. You have to ask to go to the toilet. It's reproducing the factory. So. Of course, I mean, obviously, lots of people have written about this. Foucault, obviously, um, people like Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. But the question isn't is that if it's such a the way Gramsci describes it in prison notebooks is in his section on schools is if it's a tool for uh, hegemony, if it's a tool for um, uh, ideology, like Althusser talks about. It's a it is the place where ideology is created, and you have the production of labor power actually there. Then it also can be, as Gramsci says, be used as a tool to, he doesn't call it counter-hegemony, but a, a place of counter-hegemony, just like the factory. Um, I mean, I don't know how many, I don't know. And that's also what Paulo Freire is suggesting. He's saying, okay, you know, this is a place where this can actually be done. This is such an important place within capitalism. I don't think universities are actually that important. I mean, it's universities aren't like, in, in, universities are essential in, 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 terms of, in terms of ensuring a class system, that hegemony, that common sense. Oh, you have a degree that you paid shitloads of money for. That means you have access to all this labor market. Oh, you don't have a degree that you couldn't pay shitloads of money for. Therefore, you deserve to live on the street eating out of garbage cans. That's, that's fucking ideology. But in schools, that that that's important to stabilize the system, but schools is are so essential. Like Althusser says in his essay on the ideological state apparatus, so essential that that's a perfect place that interventions could be made. Uh, we are very interested in the system running in reverse and that idea of counter hegemony. Tom wants to come in on this. Yeah, thank you, Lee. Yeah, to kind of pick up on on your great point, Ashok, and yours, Nick. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot about that about what is the purpose of schools in Britain in 2022? And I think in that idea of kind of reproducing ideology, I think it does that and it does just create kind of a pervasive kind of sense of um, competition. So in the work, in, in my school, my workplace, um, when kids sit in assessment, they'll be given a ranked number, a score from one to whatever the lowest number might be in that cohort. So kids kind of very much are being taught from quite a young age that this is your place, this is where you sit. And if you want to get high, you need to kind of work hard and, and pull yourself up. But I mean, yeah, comparing it to something like America, I don't know if, if the ideological drive is is quite as strong or if there's that many vested interests in pushing a specific ideology. So I know, for example, at the moment, uh, I don't know too much about it. Others may know more that in kind of charter schools in America, this kind of drive, it's also become like a cultural issue. It's a, it's a place to push back on, on trans rights and abortion rights and things like that. And I think there's an element of that in Britain, particularly around... Um, Things like Black Lives Matter and uh, and anti-racism and anti-imperialism um, and on, on issues like Palestine, but I don't think there's any sort of that organised push. I think the ideology is a lot more kind of pervasive there, and I think in terms of 
like the people who are tasked with reproducing this ideology, like us, the teachers, the educators. Um, I think there's a lot of self-policing. I think Nick or someone else has said on this podcast, it's this idea that everyone has a manager in their head and people are constantly either self-policing themselves to not say the wrong thing or they do have kind of their own trashy, rubbish, incorrect view of the world that they're kind of replicating. Because that's the thing I, I think I see a lot in education and the assemblies that I see senior leaders delivering today in 2022, they just remind me of the assemblies that were being delivered to me in, say, 1999, 2000, 2001, in the pre-2008 era, where the message was um, you could be in a, work, a working-class person, a working-class school, you go to sixth form, the state will give you money to stay on in the educational maintenance allowance, and then you could go to university, you could be the first person, your family to go to university, and you could have a better life and more opportunities than, than go before if you kind of play by the rules and do the right thing and sort of that kind of that's just been replicated word for word stuff that was being said 20 30 years ago even though the material ground beneath it has shifted so i mean yeah i don't kind of know to what sense there is some sort of grand conspiracy about using schools in britain as as a place to push particular ideologies because increasingly um i just get a sense that maybe it is just the complete grift and academisation in this country is just a way to cut lower paid staff and extract public money and give it to CEOs and give it to senior leadership management pay and six-figure salaries for people who who occasionally rock up out of school in, a, in very expensive suits and then promptly disappear and don't do very much. That's kind of my views on that. Uh, did you have a question for Ashok Tom at all? No, just a general comment. I think that I, I don't know about the school, schools as much, but I was going to say that, um, so I'm mostly learning to hear about it, but it does make sense that, you know, when you look at like privatization and you're like, okay, why did privatization happen? You know, in the, in the, basically the 1970s and eighties, it happens because you have this crisis happening in the 1970s. I think I was talking a little bit about this in Bristol, but in a different context, but a crisis of profitability, you know, and that crisis in England and the U.S. in particular happens for a series of reasons. And that profitability crisis is why by the 1980s, Reagan and Thatcher are seeking, constantly seeking new terrains of profitability, as David Harvey calls it. And those new terrains of profitability come in the sort of shift from exchange value to use value in terms of like the, the, the housing market, in terms of in terms of privatizing all kinds of services. Why privatize it? It doesn't make any sense to privatize. Like why, privatization doesn't make any sense from a perspective of saying services or in terms of, uh, of public resources, because they're, it's obviously going to some company or, or CEO, it doesn't make logical sense, but it makes logical sense if you have this crisis of profitability and they're, they're constantly seeking to boost private profit. So I don't know much about academies. I guess my question would be, are these like large companies controlling these or are they, I mean, that might be a stupid question, but are there large companies that control these and are they like publicly traded companies that are then basically siphoning off public resources to run them or are they just supported by um, just to jump in, I mean, it, when people try and scrutinise what academies are, they are uh, ostensibly, in legal terms, charitable trusts, but obviously they don't rely on donations. They don't, They rely upon a budget which is allocated to them from the Department of Education in Whitehall. It's a centrally managed disbursement of funds, uh, but what creates the corporate structure is that that money that would all 
originally have just gone straight to schools per school per pupil this amount of money that 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 budget now gets top sliced so that the trust can appoint a central team that obviously comes with a ceo with a six-figure salary uh the larger the trust the more six-figure salaries they are now that from their argument they're arguing that they have the expertise and the managerial nous to really get the best out of these schools and the you know councils were failing and you know that there are plenty of badly run schools in this country and that's historically been the case almost like it's a deliberate plan but that's that's another conversation um our concern is that um by opening up these privatized institutions by creating them quite consciously you're you're turning a state asset i.e a secondary school into an asset that belongs to a a a trust a a a privatized charity what you're doing there is is creating uh, a new layer of sort of managerialism a new layer of policing and what i see happening quite a lot especially over the last two or three years um especially since you know boris and his cabinet got in is that we have this kind of dialectic where um well even let's just let's just take last week last week you had the attorney general just going off on record saying that in her view, schools have no obligation to respect the rights of transgender children. Just just straight out coming and saying it and raising all the, the turfy uh, ghouls and specters. Oh, what about the protected spaces, the change rooms, the toilets, right? This is the fucking Attorney General of the United Kingdom, right? Now, she's issued no policy. She's issued no guidance. It's merely a, it, it's, it's a clarion call. It's, it's a, this is the tone. This is the direction of the wind. You guys just work out amongst yourselves what you really should do. And I will give the head teachers union some credit. They've genuinely pushed back against the attorney general going, you can't just come out and say this, that you know, that surely this is a question of the law rather than you just hate trans kids, you know, but uh, you know, it has parallels and I'm sorry to, to go there, but you know, Ian Kershaw talks about the similar dialectic because one central problems historians have got is that we don't have a signed order from Hitler saying, I oh, Adolf Hitler, please go ahead, do the Holocaust. But what he was doing was like issuing these promulgations and just letting everyone beneath him work out the details that there, there, there's sort of an exchange between public and private there, but I'm probably just going off on one and I have no question. Does anyone else? <laughs> Uh, no, I just wanted to add some of the, like, the cynical arguments from these dickheads on uh, six-figure salaries when you kind of... Because we constantly, basically at the end of every like set of demands that we send to our CEO, we ask him how much he's paid, how much the other people on his like level are paid, and then we ask him if he'll support the pay campaign. And he, he just gets so snotty whenever we ask any of those things because he just says it's not really relevant. But he, And then what happens, he'll ignore it, and then the next time he does like a... sends a letter out or does some kind of like joint briefing he'll mention how councils were really bad at education and he'll say councils are really good at some things you know like collecting bins but they weren't very good at education it's like hmm, yeah i feel like they were different departments mate and maybe they did actually have some specialties maybe they you know and they did and he's like oh well it's actually cheaper for me to do this than the person the person at the council was paid more than me and it's like i can't be bothered to look but i'd be very fucking surprised if someone running four secondary schools was was paid at the council was paid like six figures it's just it's, it's bonkers it's absolutely bonkers do they say because in uh when we're negotiating we don't really con- we're not very as directly confrontational because actually Birkbeck is until recently was not the worst of the universities although some of us in the union were like 
let's be more confrontational, obviously. But um, but he, the head of our uh, university, makes four hundred thousand pounds, and often the arguments that they make are, and that's not that's not an average um, vice chancellor, but. They'll be like, in the private sector. It's like, well, fuck off to the private sector. Wait, can we curse on this podcast? Um, then fuck off to the private sector, bro. Nobody wants you here. But the thing is, they always say that. That's the thing that people always, oh, well, in the private sector, I'd be making billions. Um, but, um, which is obviously nonsense. They but- say the numbers of people that they're responsible for as well. That's what I find. It's like, well, we've got 5,000 staff and 20 million students as well. So I'm in control of all of them. So I should get like money per per yeah they always do that as well it's pretty pretty weird i often think about private privatization only uh not only but like it's there's obviously a larger larger reason around like profit profitability crisis all of this stuff but it's also like in terms of like how we think of like um workers power workers bargaining power i'm like i'm always trying to think about that question um, it's also my area of research, but it's also something I think about more generally. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, if you look at um, universities, universities privatized various parts of their university because, you know, they were able to reduce liability. You know, they're able to like be basically outsource and contract out poverty wages and you know, union busting and all that stuff. But also that liability meant that like if workers organized in kind of into a union or shut down anything, they could just they could, someone else was doing their bidding. They could also cut and run. And I'm in terms of schools, as a broader question, is it? I'm curious to know two things. There's two you know primary po- ways that workers can assert themselves at any workplace anywhere. As this kind of kind of uh, what you call positional power. You know where you're, how you're situated, where you're situated in the economy. So like a crane operator in the middle of nowhere in some podunk village will have less power than a crane operator operating in a port or a dock, right? So that's about position. Um, or like, you know, like the RMT, someone driving a, a, a tube, tube train is has more power than someone, you know, working at a cookie factory in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, so like it's kind of like that, positional power. It's not about skill. The second one is about labor markets. So it's like, and the two ways that I imagine in schools that they're trying to erode that is privatization, because then you can basically, academies, they can cut and run, they can replace, they can do all kinds of things. I don't think they have the same level of power of other places because, you know, there's a kind of, when if one teachers go on strike, it's a, has a knock-on effect on the labor market because schools operate as both schools and as, as kind of daycare, not daycare, but like a mechanism to like care for kids when their parents are working. Um, so it has an effect broadly. But then the second part is around labor market. So like if we, you know, in universities, they'd love to hire people without PhDs because then you broaden the labor market. Not that, I'm not dropping, I'm not dropping my book name in here, but it's called Monopsony, where you have like lots of people trying to seek a, seek seek something. Lots of, so it's like, you know, if there's hundreds of people trying to seek a job uh, and the way that you were able to create barriers to that. So like, for example, in France, I believe this is France, but if someone knows the system, feel free to correct me. But basically, you finish your PhD. They have an overproduction of PhDs here. Once you finish your PhD, you do a series of intense exams and stuff. And then the ones that are chosen whittle down the labor market. Whatever you think about that, basically what that does is give workers more bargaining power. Whereas here, they're like, everyone who finishes the PhD comes in the labor market. Now, if they expand beyond the PhD, it means our bargaining power goes down because there's more competition. And so they can, we're easily replaceable, which means we have less disruptive power. I'm curious to know, like, the ability for teachers to come, because I know there's this 
Teach First, which is modeled after Teach for America in America. And my school was full of Teach for America teachers in America. And they were they were fine as individuals, but obviously it was a mechanism to erode the union and erode the bargaining power of workers. Those, um, beyond privatization, is that also something that's happening in schools? Like, are they finding ways? And if they are, it's so clearly to me a way to erode the, the power of workers. Yeah, well, what I would say to that is, so when it comes to the sort of shift to the academization, one of the things you get with the, the higher um, figure salaries and things like that um, is that there are also people who are not trained in education. Like a lot of the people, the further up you go, you'll get a point where there'll be, you don't need to have a teaching degree or ever have entered a classroom um, to get that uh, job. And that's actually a, a good thing, that there's a reason why they don't have that. It's because the more time you spend in the classroom, to me, as a general rule, the more time you spend caring about students. And therefore, there's a certain point where, I mean, I know people have different political ideologies, but there's a certain point where you're looking at what's going on in schools. And you're like, this is bad. It can't get worse. But if you want it to get worse, then you have to not care. And it really helps that the person at the top, the highest person that you're speaking to, it really helps that that person ultimately has no idea how bad what they are implementing is actually going to be. Like there's there's one thing to implement it to tomorrow. It, it might not look that bad then, but realising down the line what's happening and, and seeing that uh, continuation as well. We're talking people who have, like, I think, don't think you even stay in these sorts of jobs for that long. Obviously, it's early days in, in terms of education academization in the grand scheme of things but they don't tend to stay for so long that they actually see what it was for the start and what it looks like now so you get that effect it really helps i think push through things that are really bad and obviously things have been bad in all sorts of ways but the the next step for them because they've cut so much to the quick there's not really much left to take so you now have to start making us um less and less skilled and that's in all sorts of areas um, so having that person who's just deadpan, doesn't care, is a very effective thing to have in your corner when you're basically creating a situation where firing people who are skilled, firing people who've been there in the job for years and years and years, or making them quit basically through a series of different means, that's helpful um, to not give a shit because the next thing you're going to replace them with is going to be, you know, undergraduates, as you say, teach first and other, there's loads of ones that are like that. Um, but yeah, what that does, obviously, it means that they're only usually teaching for a couple of years. They're cheap as fuck. Um, they might leave, but there's always more to replace them. It's a it's a good link between um, undergraduate or postgraduate, I'd say, who don't really know what they're going to do with their lives, go into teaching for a few years then find it appalling and leave. Uh, and you've also got support staff who, yeah, in more and more droves are leaving. And actually I'm seeing more and more, again, um, like people who've just graduated um, who are going into support work, which would usually previously have been done by um, people, mostly women, who want that job because it works with their lifestyle the care that they do for other members of their family. And those people are leaving in droves because the conditions being bad and yeah, replaced by um, fresh, freshly graduated students or not students anymore, freshly graduated people. Um, those are some of the things and, and how it all links together, I think. Yeah, I mean, just a one quick point. There is now an officially published unqualified teacher pay scale, you know, and that, that is something the Department for Education is comfortable with. It's listed alongside your qualified teacher 
stats, you know, qualified teacher pay scale, your support staff pay scale, and you're unqualified, and it's just all presented in the same document. Tom, I think you wanted to jump in. Uh, yeah, thanks, Lee. Yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's half term at the moment. Maybe I'm feeling feeling po- positive or optimistic. But yeah, I was thinking about. Um, uh, when Ashok, you were talking about this idea of workers' power, and I think a big thing, a huge thing in education at the moment, in addition to terms and conditions and the degradation there, and work, um, it's kind of wrapped in with work. Is this idea of of autonomy? So I was thinking about when I was talking about my my employers, we have all these these people on big salaries, and I get I get kind of observed and scrutinised quite often, but I I always find in quite a superficial way, as in. I felt at times in my career, I don't have much autonomy, but maybe it's because of my length of service. I've been teaching for 10 years now. I feel I do have quite a lot of day-to-day autonomy inside the classroom itself. So you've got all the kind of bullshit outside. And I think we've all talked about this a lot in in, in the podcast and just generally. It's like the thing that keeps us coming back year after year, week after week, month after month, is that we do really enjoy kind of being in the classroom with kids and having the conversations with kids. I feel in spite of kind of this sort of pervasive kind of right-wing ideology that kind of clouds um, education and uh, and is kind of creeping this huge managerialism, I do find when, well, when, when the door's closed and it's me and it's 30 kids, I can within reason kind of say and do what I want and I have that autonomy there and I don't like to kind of preach to kids because that's just not a great way to teach but it's nice to get kids to draw their own conclusions and to teach them quite interesting interesting histories I'm a history teacher and quite radical radical history um, feminist history socialist trade union history anti-racist history and it's I don't feel that pressure day to day to kind of not do that so I think a lot of the, a lot of our oppressors and again you talked about Suella Braveman and the Tories and the Deem Zahawi is like, I can't, I can't tell if, if they do have some grand master plan or if they are just quite lazy people. And within that, we can then see the kind of the opportunity for, for a fight back and a pushback and to reclaim our autonomy. I think, Charlie, you talked about Teach First, like people who come and do Teach First and who have shitty politics and a shitty outlook, they, get, they don't last very long because what are they doing here in what is a caring profession? And those who do Teach First and are good and stay and become teachers over time they just become teachers like us and they can kind of see through the bullshit and they can kind of understand why things are the way they are and we recruit them to the NEU and they can become NEU reps and NEU organisers, NEU activists and those who are rubbish become shitty managers and and the cycle continues again. So yeah, I think when we've talked about it before we called it kind of leaky time, I think um, maybe I'm just like it is because I'm not actually in school at the moment. I'm maybe only remembering the positive sides. But I think I feel there's quite a lot of opportunity for that. And I feel kids at the moment, they've experienced a lot, particularly through COVID. They they can kind of understand and perceive the world and they can understand the difference between what they're being told by the government, by senior leadership in an assembly and what they know and feel and can see around them and see in their communities and see in their families. So I suppose it's quite a long-winded question, but I mean to be a bit more optimistic and it's for kind of anyone who wants to jump in can education be saved what does the future look like or what does a positive vision of the future look like I'm just going to quickly jump in just because I've been reading up on my headlines recently. Um, There's currently a white paper making its way through Parliament, uh, but 
I mean, it contains a bunch of worrying things like a full steam push towards full academization. Uh, even if you're going to create these weird academies that are still run by the local authority, it's done with that corporate module. What's very interesting is how internally incoherent that document is in that before it's reached its second reading in Parliament, the government has submitted amendments to its own white paper. Um, and obviously you've got actually some of the old guard, uh, people who've got a shout out on this podcast before, people like Lord Nash, uh, people like um, basically the people who oversaw academization since 2010 don't actually agree with some of the proposals that are in this white paper, um, maybe because it, it it means less chances for them directly to profit. I don't know. I'm not I'm making guesses as to their motivations. But I think the project of privatization in schools is still very incomplete. And that's probably the biggest contrast between the state education sector and what Ashok has been talking about in the university sector. Um, and so I guess we're loading Ashok up with two questions here, but I wondered if, you, Ashok, you had a response to Tom in terms of what, what you think a positive vision for state education in the UK would be. But I want to bring the conversation also back to this idea of pinch points, because uh, you identified, obviously, what, what really would bring the university system to a halt. And I wondered if you had any similar reflections on, on the state education sector. Um, yeah, thanks, Charlie. Thanks, um, Tom, for that. And I, I kind of, um, I'm just learning a lot actually uh, about uh, education I think it's it's true what um, was said earlier about how we just really don't talk about at least in my circles about education enough on the left um, and I think on the I guess for uh, the teach first kind of group is it's it's interesting what both Charlie and Tom said about that is because they it's my school when I was in the states was a teach for America teach school that that's what the model of teach first <clears throat> and we were kind of back then kind of a first it was a failing school for like 10 years or 12 years or something it was like 90% english as a second language and you know they would send these people down and they weren't bad people but the problem was and this is an argument that people make here in a lot of places they're like these are great teachers and they'll come i'm like if they were so great and i'm not saying they can't they don't have the potential to be great why are they sending them to the elite schools? Why are they sending them to the schools where the most working class students and students of color are? It, it, because they're like guinea pigs. It was if, and everyone knew it. Students knew it. Students were like, yo, this is so obvious the case. And we know you're not going to really stick around. Um, and often people would leave before the end of the first year because the stakes were so low. What's going to happen? They, it wasn't that much money and there wasn't a career they wanted to enter anyways. Um, and so uh, I think obviously that's a program that's been adopted from the states. That's um, and, you know, the people that were the biggest proponents of that in America were people who were um, quite involved in the Obama administration, of course. Um, and they um, they're sort of leading lights of the kind of privatization charter school kind of uh, drive in the U.S. Um, and I'm always curious about this. I don't want to be like a deep kind of structuralist because uh, Tom was saying, oh, is there this grand strategy in the creation of schools or is this a grand strategy? But I do think that there's, I, you know, things are, ideology is produced just like any commodity, uh, but it's produced um, not just like it, it's a bit more diffuse, but it is definitely, institutions don't simply just exist for the sake of in, existing um, under capitalism. Like, it isn't necessarily the case that the state, as a kind of mediator of capital, 
is interested in a highly educated, switched on public. Um, in fact, they're, they're not necessarily interested in that. Um, and so if the role of, and, and it's like, okay, so these schools were created, we know for lots of evidence that they're in many ways to kind of create a disciplined public and also, to, and then some people can make it, but um, vast majorities don't make it. Um, and that's also part of ideology. But, you know, since the kind of end of that disciplinary regime of production under capitalism, I'm curious to know what the shift is in schools. Like, it has to, it, there must be kind of a shift, you know, presumably in these schools because they're not interested in people doing mundane tasks all, all day, every day, because the, the, those jobs don't really exist. I mean, industrial manufacturing in this country is something like 3.5% or something. Um, it's very low. So it's not that, you know, I'm not saying other, t other jobs aren't mundane, but with standardization and the, you know, de-skilling and the degradation of the working class into factories, you, you do really see a kind of, uh, there is a kind of mundane nature to the standardization of factory work. Um, and so, I don't know, I just, I, I guess, I'm always kind of curious why, school, why schools, um, you know, in this country are so uh, regimented in terms of doing it for exams. The British education system was then exported to other countries, of course, in the post-colonial world. And you had the same kind of regimented education system in India and South Asia more generally. But in the U.S., I'm not praising the U.S. education system. The U.S. is a horrible place, but it's that the education system in general isn't done for exams. Um, and it's you know, I'm, they, we don't really have a national exam system. There are an exam system. You take exams to, to measure the, 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 how the schools are. I mean, it may have changed now, but, but back when I was in school, so they have tasks, but they're not for individuals. Even when you finish high school, you're not taking an exam. If you want to enter a university, you may have to take the ACT, ACT and SAT, but they're kind of ending those as well now. Um, and those are options. Um, so I just, I guess it's more a question than anything. Um, I guess also in the question of what can we envision schools to be, I, I don't know what they can be, but I know that whatever people want them to be, they'll have to be through the successful, uh, you know, self-realization of the working class. And that happens through the self-organization and the disruption by the working class. Um, you know, if you look at Chicago, the city I'm from, uh, there's a, you know, a radical ticket, radical faction took over the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, I'm sure people are aware. And they mobilized against reforms that Rahm Emanuel, the then mayor and former chief of staff and IDF soldier and, uh, you know, general goon, um, was the mayor and introduced a number of reforms. Um, including cutting um, schools in poor black neighborhoods, poor Latino neighborhoods. So you had this broad coalition mobilized and it was generalized. You know, they had an indefinite strike and everybody went on strike and it was a beautiful thing. And they won lots of the demands. They pushed back and they, it, they dispossessed Rahm Emanuel. I mean, someone else took their place who's not as bad, but it's very hard to be as bad as Rahm Emanuel. But still, it's like, I do think it can't just be that we're fighting back to preserve institutions that we don't think are necessarily that good. It has to be something else. But I think at this point, it's just trying to hold back the tidal wave of, of shit, I'd probably say. But that's me not knowing much of what's, what's even being proposed in the white paper.
Nick, I believe you wanted to come in on this. It point. was being proposed as a tidal wave of shit, of shit um, basically. <laughs> uh, but the, yeah, no, I mean, the interesting things come out with the um, I don't know if people follow it with the IT with like universities that train teachers. So the government has had this attack on universities training teachers, as we're saying, happening in the states, stuff like that. Um, but they're finding that even universities that got they've all been invited to reapply. Uh, for the ability to do this. And even places like Nottingham, which got like outstanding rating by Ofsted, were told they didn't get the contract uh, to run PGCE courses next year. So that that is happening. They are attacking universities' ability to teach because they want more um, teach-first people. Um, but they're struggling to recruit anyone. They just can't recruit anyone. It's just not working. Like They do have these ideological things. And yeah, it does hit a limit of what, you know, they just aren't... Yeah, I suppose there are people that are desperate for work, but there aren't that many people who are prepared to work as hard as you have to for a teacher for as little respect and, you know, do it for two years and then burn out and and, and, and hate everything and kind of stop. Um, I, what I do think is happening, and this is going to be a growth in the sector, because what I the way I see academy is, academization is like privatising, is it creates these jobs, like we were saying, for this management cast, which is basically edgy Twitter, like the whole education twitter and it's just consultancy like circle jerking basically going on giving each other jobs and things like that people that that burn out of slt um just get these jobs but the new thing that's happening i think is like private tutoring like we saw this when um when covid hit you saw like a couple of schools like i don't know where the oak academy trust thing came from but it came from some schools or some teachers and they're just writing banks and banks and banks of lessons um, and the government is happy to plough money into that, happy to plough money into private tutoring because it will go to their, um, you know, because they're like, oh, well, your kid's falling behind. We'll get a private tutor to do it because, you know, the schools are shit and we hate teachers and they're pointless and they never do it properly. But a private guy will do it and the government will fund it and that's why and that's why we're really good. So I think we're going to see that happen a lot as well. And that is a privatised thing. That's the way of privatising it, isn't it? It's like, it's not teachers doing the education. It's not teachers getting the exam grades because the schools are shit and they just basically hold kids. But these private tutors who will come from a reputable company that you can pay for and will give some money to support their business interests, that's that's the kind of thing there. Um, but to kind of bring it back to the choke points, I think in schools, one of our choke points is the childcare angle. And we did mobilise around that during COVID. You know, we were like, you need the, te- you, you want to open the schools because you want to open the economy. So you need teachers to look after the kids so that you can open the economy. And we said, fuck off, no, we're not going into the unsafe schools. So that was, well, that was something that was effective where we did hit a choke point and did that. And the way I see the, the like another choke point is um, you can, like on local levels, you can piss off management to an extent, you know, because when there's a strike, management thinks that that lowers the school's reputation locally which means that they get fewer people in like next time. So they lose money. So that, that's another choke point, just causing disruption in schools. Management hate the bad reputation from that. Um, so you can hear a baby talking as a student of the future. Um, and um, the other one, the big thing is, is exams, like exams and SATs. Like I think that has to be like a really big attack. We're not quite there yet in a position to challenge A-levels and GCSEs, but SATs, that was something that was building before COVID, you know, SATs boycotts. Like we should be boycotting SATs. We should be getting our primary school members organised and refusing to engage in SATs because it just ruins education for so many kids. Um, and if you could disrupt SATs, so even the thought of SATs is making this baby cry. Um, the, <laughs> but they should test them younger even still. Um, the uh, Yeah, if you could disrupt SATs, then again, you could start pushing back against GCSEs. 
um, because it is big business. It's huge business. Um, and that's kind of where we lost in, in the COVID battle because we ended up getting fucked because they were like, well, teachers have got to mark the, the kids don't even sit the exams, but teachers will still mark them, give them a grade. So the kids will still get a grade. The exam boards still get paid. And who does that work? Oh, it's the teachers doing all the marking. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Nick. That was like, a, it felt like a loss to go through it and do that labour essentially for free. Um, but it still, I think it's a win on a possible strategic level because it does raise questions about the legitimacy of the entire system. Like if we were trusted to sign off on the qualifications of an entire cohort, and we were, that was 20,000 schools pumping out GCSEs trusting the teachers I, I i do think it's something we can point to in the future to go well if it was okay then why is it not okay now i uh tom you got something yeah again i'm, I'm being weirdly optimistic today and i think it's yeah it's a sort of the the kind of the contradiction is they absolutely hate us they hate the teaching profession they hate education generally but they really really do need us and i think one of the pinch points is that i think kind of universal state education is a deeply kind of caring profession. It's just on a basic level, it's just not suited to arseholes. Like, you can't be a classroom teacher for five, ten years. I'm saying this is a classroom teacher of, of ten years, so maybe I'm the arsehole. You can't, you can't be that. You can't be so uncaring and not giving a shit. I mean, we've had that before. We think about when we've kind of put on events... Um, like challenging militarism or, or racism and we put it on Facebook and someone gets in touch with us and be like, how dare you teach our kids not to be racist? And it's like, well, what are you going to do then, mate? You Are you going to quit your job, whatever it might be, um, take a year to train to be a teacher, get on a Teach First programme, go into a school, get a job that's not very well paid, really long hours to what teach people racism to make kids racist like go on I defy you to do that and I don't think they have and it's similar you know and they always have those projects to get um to get ex ex service people into the classroom again it's always the sign up rates negligible it never they always everything they try it never seems to work or it's never unless the intended outcome is to create this like diffuse chaos it ne- they never get what they want and I've worked in a school where the turnover rate was really really high every every couple of years it'd be like okay half the school would leave so within two three four years you've got an entirely new workforce and it was always like this is the one these this cohort this group of workers these are going to be the teachers the education workers who who are going to be the pliable malleable ones who are just going to do as they're told and then we're going to be this amazing education institute and everything's going to be fine and it never was the case they never they never get to that point because the new cohort that gets employed that comes through are yeah they're not arseholes they're quite critical well-meaning, well-intentioned, fundamentally quite nice people on the whole. And so I think our task is we are a bit pushing at an open door with you might get someone who doesn't have a particular kind of trade union or collective outlook, but they're still like a pretty decent person and they can be won over by, um, as Ashok, you mentioned, by like the kind of the, the pretty straightforward like McAlevey style techniques are like, what are the issues in your workplace? Have you tried a bit of trade union? Have a go on that and see what it gets you. And yeah, I think the SATS boycott's a good one. That is, again, one where you're pushing out an open door. The people who are tasked with delivering those SATs and, and getting those performances and those exam results, they loathe it. The kids loathe it. It's not going to take much in certain areas, in certain kind of communities, particularly maybe the more kind of affluent middle-class communities who are concerned about the mental well-being and stress of their children. I mean, everyone is, obviously. To kind of win them round to the idea of a SATS boycott, and you can kind of undermine the system I think quite 
quite readily with with kind of a bit of a bit of impetus and a bit of organizing. I would just say um, that that's so interesting um, what both of you guys said. I I think it's kind of um, if you look at marketing boycotts in universities, just as an example, the things that are that are advantageous at schools is that. You don't have people who are like, oh my God, I've spent all this money, which is legit. Like they've, people are borrowing, like desperately trying to spend this money. And then we're not, we're refusing to, even the people that are the most sympathetic are like, oh man, please tell me you're not going to do that. Um, and so it's really hard to win people over. Whereas in schools, they're like, this is amazing. I mean, I, w- I would imagine it would be amazing. I mean, if you look at what happened in the US when you had places like New York, uh, Chicago as well that boycotted exams, um, state level exams. There was a huge response from students and, you know, it worked quite well. I mean, people often say, can you learn from the industrial relations of America? The thing is, you can. And here's why. America, unlike here and unlike Western Europe more specifically, doesn't really have a welfare state and never really had that class compromise. So when neoliberalism happens in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't much for the state to give. You know, they're like, oh, this is the retrenched state. What state? The state didn't have, wasn't given out that much anyways in America. So it was like you already had antagonistic unions up and down the country. Those antagonistic unions to win anything. That's why you have, everyone's in a community organization or a union. If you come to major cities, you have union density in places like Chicago that are like quite high. I mean, they're like, like not Scandinavia levels, but you're talking 55, 60%. So, um, those, those, that, that, that's because you didn't, you always had these kind of antagonistic unions. And so, some of these tactics and some of these strategies that were deployed are are things that people can learn, I think, um, learn here. And I think the the the, the point that um, was also made about the role that they played. You know, you look even things how things turned out in terms of COVID. It's just it is such a much more strategic place uh, than universities. Um, because of the role they play and because of the subjectivity of the, of the, of the students. Um. So, Ashok, thank you for your contributions. Uh, I'm going to try and ask you uh, two or three more questions to tie a bow on this lovely interview. Um, for any of our UCU listeners who might be listening, uh, there are a few out there, um, what advice would you give to the UCU rank and file or organisers active in the higher education sector? Uh, where, in your opinion, do we go from here in regards to the attacks upon your sector? Okay, so there's a number of universities a few months ago that voted, I would say 30 for six... Our, our mandate lasts for six months. So we had a kind of reballot or a ballot uh, after the first ballot it, a few a few months ago, and then that um, was a very poor turnout. And is per, just in general reaching the threshold. I think it was maybe thirty two universities and hundred out of one hundred ten. What and then you have nineteen that are going on marketing boycott. What we need to do is from this point onwards mobilize our branches and those branches mobilize at the regional levels. And those regional levels mobilize to put the pressure nationally to do a reballot in September. And to hit the ground running, maximum disruption for when the school year starts, vote for indefinite strike. Some places might take it, some places might not. But the point is that's on the table. We mobilize for it. We win the arguments. We hit the ground. That's a six-month mandate. That six-month mandate then immediately escalates to a marketing boycott. Now, some places don't mark until the summer. Some places mark paper. Some places mark, you know, first term. Other, It's uneven across the country. The, the, the fact is the threat of it, the threat of disruption, if we have a big enough uh, kind of disruption at the beginning of the year that's more generalized and at least a majority of, camp, of branches around the country, 
we can actually win this thing. This isn't a foregone conclusion. We can win this thing because just like students are in competition to each other, and I think Charlie was saying this earlier, and teachers and university lecturers are in competition with, with each other, universities are in competition with each other. And so if you have 50 universities or 55 universities or 60 universities that are genuinely terrified of the fact that they're going to be, that we're going to disrupt there, they're going to be like, sod it. We don't care about these other universities. We're going to like, we need to put pressure on USS. We need to put pressure on the other UK universities to make sure that we concede and, and, and sort of, we've made reasonable, we've made a number of reasonable demands, just a reassessment. I mean, just my, just so listeners understand the way it was assessed. this, is Martin Wolf at the FT basically wrote a brilliant piece critiquing the, the proposal by USS. They said the way that it's done is that if given the, the, the surpluses that we have, the, the way the liability has been written and the way the cuts have been uh, delivered is that if every university went bankrupt except for one, let's say Birkbeck or Su Sussex, whatever, their budget plus our, our, our uh, USS um, surplus or budget put together would have to pay out everyone, like, you know, be able to pay out all the members. That's a completely insane proposition. And even Mark Wolf said that hasn't been seen since post-World War I in Germany. So the, the proposal that we're putting forward is completely reasonable. We can win. Uh, we just have to mobilize and win people over. And that's, that, that's, that's, that'll, take a, that'll take a lot of effort, but I think we can do it. Well, uh, we wish you the best of luck in your endeavors uh, in that regard, Ashok. Um, uh, speaking personally here, am I right to be paranoid that what is happening to university staff is likely to happen to educators of all age ranges? Well, I think that the the evidence speaks for itself. I mean, look, what, what they've done throughout these sectors have basically coincided with each other. You know, as they're trying to privatize and corporatize higher education, they're tr they've also privatized and corporatized, uh, you know, secondary education, primary education. So... Those, those attempts that have been made in higher education, I don't see why they would be made there. They, basically, what they do is they pit different groups of workers against each other. I remember last strike, I was doing some random news thing, and they were like, look how better your pensions are other than like more than this other group of workers. I don't know who they were saying. And so that's how it works. They just say, well, you have it so good. It's, a, it's always a harmonization downward. It's a race to the bottom. There's, not, there's very few sectors you know, and, and unions are, that have decent pensions because they're in a very strategic position within the economy and they've asserted themselves over and over and over again. And RMT is a perfect example of this, but dock workers in the US is another example of this. They've been able to preserve those benefits that they gained in the 1920s and 30s to the present, whereas other sectors are always under threat, you know? So we have another fight happening very soon on top of the pension fight around wages or on salaries. So... It's endless. Um, the fight is endless. The attacks are endless. Uh, but, you know, this is this is the history of the working class. And I'm going to invite you uh, with your final contribution, Ashok. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or anything you'd like to draw people's attention to? Uh, no, I think I've maybe said too much. Um, but uh, thank you for inviting me to this. This is great. I've learned a lot. Uh, would you be considering coming back to Bristol Transform next year? Absolutely. I love Bristol Transform. I've been like talking, raving about it. I've been loving it ever since. Um, anyone who knows me knows I've been just bigging it up. It was a, such a great time.
There's a, a new version of it kicking off this year down in Cornwall called Curnow Transformed. Uh, we'll all be going there later this week. Uh, by the time I get this edited and out, it will have already happened. But yeah, there is still uh, fresh ideas. There's fresh thinking. Uh, there is there's always hope. And uh, it's through it's through activities like this that I, I feel closest to that hope. So uh, any other contributions from the Requires Improvement team? Well, I was just going to say well done to all the like ECU organisers and reps and members who've been let down by certain leadership decisions because <laughs> they've busted their like oh it must have been an absolute nightmare to like, trudge through all that stuff and you know the amount of conversations they've had the amount of work they've done um and then to be in this position and so i yeah maximum solidarity with all the people and uh yeah sorry, sorry for anyone feeling sort of deflated but yeah no and i and i, I... I would add, I think there's a question for the UCU leadership about how well they've really supported their members. You know, I don't know the ins and outs of UCU politics and structures or budgets, but I do know that my union, the NEU, is sitting on about 60 million quid cash. Now, that that cash obviously can't pay the payroll of the entire education sector. Probably it, it would be like bullets off the side of a battleship for the higher education sector. But you're asking your members to lose a lot of money for this industrial real effort maybe if we're going to go all out maybe you should put the money all out as well to try and you know compensate your workers for the losses they faced in the struggles just an idea just thrown it out there it doesn't get said enough uh ashok's nodding in agreement uh but with if if no one's got anything else guys i'm gonna tie a bow on this one Awesome. Well, you've been listening to Requires Improvement. Uh, we have been joined by Ashok Kumar. Please buy his book, Monopsony Capitalism. Uh, <laughs> please also listen to his podcast he doesn't want to tell you about. Uh, it's called Historical Materialism. If I can find out a link, I'll put it in the chat. And when I re-listen and edit to all this, there'll be links to everything we've mentioned in the chat. Uh, but obviously, we did. We used to have a formal structure for this goodbye. Uh, whatever platform you're listening to us on, please give us a like and a subscribe. Please give us a comment. If you've got any ideas for future interviews or future topics you want us to cover, please get in touch with us. We're most easily available on Twitter. That's at RequiresPod. And I'm going to invite all. I'm going to invite my guests and my co-host to say goodbye. Ashok. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Tom. Take care. Bye. Nick and baby. Bye-bye. And Charlie. Bye. All right, everyone. Have a lovely rest of your days. Catch you in a bit. Cheerio. Bye-bye.